be joined by a, a panel of experts from around New England with varying backgrounds and experiences uh, related to the topics we're gonna be discussing today. My one digital colleague from our Boston Human Resources Consulting Practice, Nicole Cahill, joins me along with Peter Murphy, who is a partner at Shipman and Goodwin out of Hartford, Connecticut. So thanks for, for joining me today, guys. So, um, you know, over the past uh, few weeks, employers from all over the region and across the country, in fact, have been trying to wrap their heads around the various legislative and regulatory updates, and in particular, the American Rescue Plan Act, or ARPA, I guess we can call it. Um, and and uh, you, you've got this thing called COBRA subsidies you're dealing with and some changes to the dependent care FSA uh, um, contributions people can make. So we're gonna tackle that first before we head into the current vaccination landscape, uh, a hot topic of course today, uh, and then we'll get to return to work considerations. And I heard someone on an on a earlier call that I was on say, actually, it's probably not fair to call it return to work. It's return to the workplace because it feels like we've all been working at least as hard as we were uh, pre-pandemic. All right, guys, let's start with the American Rescue Plan Act. Um, I think it might be helpful if we give everyone a high-level overview of what this actually is, uh, what it includes, why it was created, before we get into a deep dive into the different components directly affecting employers. So, Peter, I guess I'll start with you, if you could give us a high-level overview. Two main um, uh, issues, I, th I think, for me, uh, from my perspective as an employment lawyer, you know, who counsels employers uh, daily on, on the wide range of, of issues facing employers. Uh, maybe I'll start at the bottom with the extended FFCRA options, right? I mean, last year, think about where we were a year ago when we were trying to flip through uh, the FFCRA and, and figure out what obligations um, they put on employers in terms of the, the emergency paid sick leave, as well as the expanded FMLA leave for childcare uh, options. Now, those, of course, expired at the end of 2020. They were extended briefly at the start of this year. And then under the, the ARPA, it's been extended again from April 1st through September of 2021 on a voluntary basis, right? I mean, that's the, the key provision. Employers who want to extend uh, those FFR, FFCRA leave options can do so. You know, I, I think uh, there's a little bit of an open question about whether you can do just the EPSL, the, the 80 hours of sick leave, or whether you have to do the expanded FMLA as well. But uh, generally speaking, it's up to the employers whether they want to extend those options. So that's one thing I've been seeing a lot, uh, Jeff. And then obviously the COBRA premium subsidies. I mean, I mean I'm not an employee benefits lawyer, but I, I do know enough that uh, um, to know that the, the COBRA premiums is a big change, right? And maybe you can speak to that more. I think the one the one area where I've seen that come up is with separation agreements, right? Anytime. Uh, you're getting rid of an employee and you're, you're doing a separation agreement, it's great to offer uh, extended benefits. Um, but with the COBRA premium subsidies now required to be paid by employers from April 1st through September for qualifying employees, I know we'll get to that, um, that takes that off the table for separation agreements, which has been an interesting wrinkle for employers to deal with. A couple of things to add that I thought of while uh, Peter was speaking about the FFCRA. You know, we want to make sure that we're just touching on the fact that, yes, this is voluntary. Also, the 80 hours of that emergency sick does renew. So that's something unique with the plan um, this year. 
and you can use the extended FMLA for the entire length of the leave uh, for all of the reasons now covered on, under FFCRA. And lastly, want to touch on the fact that that can now be used for uh, vaccine purposes. And of course, we're going to talk about that a little bit more as well. And I think we're going to dig right into the COBRA plans, um, extended election periods, the plan enrollment options, and some of that tax reimbursement info on the upcoming slides. All right. Well, good segue. Let's, let's get into the COBRA and jumping right into it. Uh, this has arguably been the biggest question that we've seen coming across our email, and here it is. Peter, I guess I'll throw this one to you. What is the definitive definition of involuntary termination? I don't think there's any definition within the ARPA, but generally speaking, it's going to be anyone who's laid off or fired, right? Uh, exactly as it says, involuntary. Um, I think the inter one interesting issue that I don't believe is covered in it is you know, what happens when you give someone the option to resign? You're about to fire someone and, or, or in the past, you know, you were about to fire someone and you gave them the option to resign and they resigned. You know, where do they fall in that definition? Um, that, that's an interesting question. If they beat you to the punch, then they've resigned, right? Yeah. <laughs> Not Nicole, as many well, benefits for somebody that's resigning these days. Yeah, all right. Well, let's let's get into, um, Nicole, it might be helpful to level set here on who actually is eligible and who's not for this COBRA subsidy now that we've defined involuntary termination. Yes, yeah, so in broad terms, we want to make sure that we are, you know, laying the foundation that it is all involuntary termination. So that really covers the gamut, even when we have folks uh, yet have had policy violations or gross misconduct, you know, they are still eligible for this extension and we will get into kind of the logistics piece of that. Also, you know, we want to point out that this is a qualified beneficiary who lost coverage. You know, they did have to have the coverage right during their term of employment and they've lost it and they become eligible. Also that they're still within that 18 month um, time frame. And um, those folks that, you know, were n not offered employer coverage or have access to, you know, Medicare may also be eligible. Got it. You know, it's a, I, I guess this might get under the skin of some employers when they when they terminate someone for a cause, uh, they've, they've just, you know, gross misconduct or whatever, and they're going to get COBRA for free. And, and you know, that, that could, uh, you know, negatively impact claims experience. It's something that employers need to, particularly self-funded employers need to be, need to be aware of at least, not that you could do anything about it, I guess, but, um, so, um, are those who didn't elect or maybe dropped COBRA eligible for the sub, for the subsidy, Nicole? Those folks that, um, dropped COBRA if they're still within their 18-month coverage period and meet the other other eligibility, yes. Um, and again, this is from April onwards. So we're looking retrospectively back, you know, the 18-month period and those people are, you know, eligible. So those are people that we do need to notify. Got it. Okay. So, and um, so as long as they're within their 18-month period, they're eligible um, to, to go ahead and, and get the COBRA uh, subsidy. Here's a question. How does the eligibility for the, the premium subsidy change under state continuation? 
there really isn't a change here. The COBRA eligibility is available to those folks um, with the state you know, continuation program. So ARPA does not change any state continuation um, requirements or programs. Okay, so let's talk about the notice requirements then, Nicole. I think you you know you mentioned if they're they're within that eighteen month you know period, they are going to have to get a notice. And people might be saying, wait, 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 what notice? Hopefully by now you know you're going to have to send some notices out. But but uh, let, let's talk let's talk a lot let's talk about the notices. So on April seventh the Department of Labor released the highly anticipated model notice requirements. So, you know, can you walk us through what these notices are and what employers need to do with them? And Nicole, I'll start with you again. Yeah, so I think, you know, we're starting off with this webinar with the assumption that everybody really knows at this point what the COBRA subsidy is and the fact that, you know, the last time we spoke to, you know, the New England population, um, of our clients and prospects, we were sort of, you know, teeing up the fact that the DOL was releasing these model notices. And now, you know, we we have seen them effective April 7th, they have been issued. We have notices in place that will need to go out to any eligibility employees, any eligible employees by May 31st. Um, so this is, you know, something that we're referring all of our clients directly to, you know, their consultants or the DOL directly or working with their TPA to put together these notices for their employees. Um, most importantly, the notice of extended COBRA election is the notice that we want to make sure we're sending out to our employees as well as the summary of the benefits. Um, there are other notices that the DOL has provided us that we can provide in special circumstances. Um, we're not going to go through each one of those today, but it is important that, you know, if someone does have questions about which notice they should be utilizing, they're reaching out to their, you know, their contracts here at One Digital so we can appropriately guide them. There are also notices that let our, you know, employees know that, you know, that the periods have expired and they're no longer eligible. So these notices should really carry us through, you know, the life cycle of the enrollment for the employee or ex-employee, I should say. Right. Okay. So, you know, we, we just went through a lot here. Let's just recap. Um, you know, what, what are the next steps for employers, Nicole? We'll just finish this segment up with you. So I think it's really important, regardless of who we're, you know, working with, if you as employers are sending out these notices to eligible employees or you're working with the TPA carrier, the first thing that's going to be most important is that you're taking a look back and seeing who was involuntarily separated from, you know, that you as an employer within the terms outlined. And we want to make sure that we're gathering all of that employee's information as well as any dependent information and that we're, you know, populating the notices with their um, plans that they were enrolled in and also all of the other eligible plans that they could enroll in because there are special enrollment options, which we haven't really touched on, but um, that's something that, of course, is written into the um, regulation. Next, we want to make sure that we're, you know, getting these notices out to our employees within the time frame that we need to. And um, that's May 31st then we're giving employees the opportunity to enroll in this coverage period um, for that 18 months. 
we want to also make sure that we're keeping an eye out for any subsequent IRS um, clarifying rules to better understand what this premium assistance is going to look like. Because we do know as employers, we're responsible for absorbing this cost of you know, putting somebody back on the plan under COBRA, and that even includes the 2% administration fees. So we're, we are really looking to the IRS and the DOL to better understand how, as employers, we will seek reimbursement for that, you know, premium assistance credit. So let's just uh, move on, because I know we, we, we're probably going to have a long discussion about the uh, vaccination landscape, but I do want to highlight um, or make note of the, the changes to the dependent care account uh, mm -hmm. that came also from the uh, from ARPA. And uh, so the, the, the uh, contribution limits are going up significantly, like more than double. The limit for, um, for someone who's a single or married couples, filing single or, or married couples, is going from $5,000 to $10,000, $10,500. So a little more than two times. And then for married taxpayers filing separately, uh, the limit was previously $2,500, and that's going up to $5,250. Now, this applies to the 2021 calendar tax year. Uh, it does not apply to the actual uh, dependent care FSA plan year. So if you happen to have a non-calendar year plan year, you need to, you, you need to be aware of that and make sure people are uh, are kind of staying in uh, you know between the lines <laughs> going between the lines so just something to be aware of nicole do you have anything to add to, to the dca accounts um yes thanks the one item that i want to highlight is the fact that this is not mandatory so employers you know do not have to extend this to employees however if we're if we do choose to do so we have to make sure that you know, we're working with our payroll carriers to accommodate the change, especially if we're making a mid-year change. Uh, we also need to make sure that we're making the appropriate amendments to the plans um, prior to December 31st of 2021. Um, the other thing to think about is if you are working with a TPA who helps to administer these benefits for your employees, you'll want to be working closely um, to make modifications with them, them as well. And um, we do know that many of the TPAs have already started to, you know, out, reach out to employers regarding, you know, kind of what the next steps look like and how to really approach this change um, for the non-calendar year. Great. Thank you for, for adding that color. I, I uh, left alone, I would have missed all that. So thank you, Nicole. I want to, uh, let's just pause for a second. There's a couple of questions I want to address. And uh, I misspoke before and it wouldn't be a, uh, it wouldn't be a normal day if I didn't misspeak at least six times. So um, that's probably the fourth time today. I had said that, you know, someone's uh, terminated for gross misconduct that they'd still be they'd still be uh, getting cobra, and uh, I, let's clarify: those terminated for gross misconduct do not get cobra. So uh, don't have to worry about that. Another couple of questions to get to live: uh, Does cobra coverage become retroactive as well? Uh, coverage is not retroactive; um, it's only on April one and beyond. So someone who hasn't enrolled yet. They can only enroll in uh, for April 1st and be, I guess that's a little retroactive at this point, but, and then do current active employees need to receive model notices? No, 
uh, active employees don't. Only the, you only have to send the notices to the people who are eligible for the subsidy. Let's talk about mandating vaccines. And I guess I don't want anybody to think we've been neglecting Peter because here's where he's going to come in. We're going to ask him uh, from a lawyer's standpoint, can we mandate the vaccine as employers? Well, and, and now that is a timely topic, right? Early on in 2021, when it was just the healthcare companies or uh, schools, for example, others who had priority access, that wasn't really a pressing uh, question. But now, you know, Jeff, as you said, things aren't just going good. They're going great, right? The vaccines are widely available. People are getting vaccinated. It's good. Um, but uh, the key question now, uh, now that vaccines are widely available, are, is, you know, can we mandate them? And, it, and it's a, a little bit of a complicated answer. You know, big picture-wise, um, we think employers can mandate the, the vaccines. It, it's been done in the past with flu vaccines and um you know, it's certainly something companies can can consider uh, legally um, for the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, one slight wrinkle to that is that the current vaccines, the three vaccines that are available, are um, approved under that emergency uh, use authorization, right? They don't have full uh, approval from the FDA. And there's some concern out there um, that, 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 that the EUA status might preclude uh, employers from mandating it. And uh, of course, right, there, there's some litigation on that now. The uh, Department of the State of New Mexico had mandated it and someone's sued and the court hasn't acted on his injunction request yet, but the state filed a, a very aggressive brief in response saying, no, uh, we can do that, et cetera. So there'll be some litigation on that. So any, any company thinking about, um, you know, mandating the vaccine for their employee employees really, really should um, discuss that with their own counsel and, and assess the risk there. But, um, you know, two other things briefly that I could touch on is the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission, has some good guidance on vaccine administration. They updated, I think it was back in 20, December of 2020. And so people are a little frustrated they haven't um, updated that since then, but that guidance does do a very good job with some frequently asked questions and responses, um, setting out the EEOC's view as to what to do if employees refuse mandatory vaccines, et cetera. So implicit in, in that EEOC guidance is the is the the fact that employers can mandate the vaccines. And so that's kind of a high level overview of that question. And certainly um, I don't think we've seen a lot of employers, in fact, very, very few employers mandating up to date. And really, I think that was a practical um, issue just because of the availability of, of vaccines. But even, you know, nursing homes, healthcare companies, et cetera, um, they, they have not mandated it for the, for the most part uh, to date. But we're starting to get a lot more, more questions about that, as I'm sure you and Jeff and Nicole are as well. And it's certainly um, going to be a major issue for the next six months. Yeah, uh, Peter, uh, on that note, and I was surprised when, you know, a lot of the, the healthcare facilities and nursing homes weren't mandating, but um, you're right. I think most employers are going to lean against that. In fact, Littler, which is the world's largest uh, employment and labor law practice, found that most employers are unlikely to mandate uh, the vaccine, yeah. as you said. Nearly half, about 48%, had already decided against mandating and uh, and only seven percent of employers polled were were planning on or actually decided to go ahead and and mandate the um, the vaccine. We have seen some colleges and universities like Rutgers and Yale 
saying they're going to mandate for students before they come back to college, but I guess that's a, a separate issue. Peter, is it, is it safe yeah. to say that, you know, if you want to be sure to avoid lawsuits, you probably just shouldn't mandate it? Well, yeah, that's one thing to always consider, right? Legal risk, right? Um, and uh, some of the colleges have come. It's interesting. If you go to the Chronicle of Higher Education, they, they, they're doing a good job tracking all the colleges. And certainly a lot of them are mandating it for students. And, and some are doing it for employees. And this, the state of California system just came out and said they're going to mandate for their employees once the, it, the vaccines have final approval. So there's a couple different approaches throughout the higher education um, landscape. And um Sure, legal risk is one thing you're going to want to consider about mandating the vaccines. And then I know we have some slides coming up uh, talking about, you know, accommodations and exception the mandates. And so, and some practical issues re related to um, uh, vaccine mandates that we're going to want to consider as well. Yeah, yeah. Nicole, why don't you weigh in here from an HR standpoint? So, you know, it looks like a lot of employers are saying, nah, not going to mandate. You know, what, what are the concerns that employers have? What are the concerns around mandating from a, from an HR standpoint? Yeah, so when it comes to mandates, I, I am also seeing that employers are not, you know, necessarily implementing the policies to mandate. However, we are, of course, you know, moving towards encouraging our employees to get vaccinated working towards universal vaccinated populations within the workplace because you know helps to move things back to the the new normal um however we are dealing with hesitation of employees we you know we are doing this you know mitigation of this hesitation you know primarily through education really having our leaders at companies kind of take a stance making sure that we're using our resources to educate our employees in the right way um, i've seen clients bring in you know medical professionals to educate their population on you know the benefits of the vaccine and kind of busting some of those myths that are out there about the vaccine so that's you know that's one way that we're tackling that handle hesitation piece um, reasonable accommodations which we are going to touch on in the next couple of slides we you know we know that this is an issue if we mandate we are going to have people that are unable to you know get a vaccination because they you know may have a sincerely held religious belief or uh you know serious medical condition or disability that you know prevents them from doing so so that's something that we would of course as employers have to you know go through the process of reasonable accommodation through ada when we're thinking of mandating as well, I want to touch on the fact that, you know, this is a tricky issue. We have, you know, the risk here of impacting employee morale. We have a risk here of implementing a policy where we're putting, you know, retention at risk. We may have our star players that are the ones that don't want to get the vaccine. And then, you know, how do we move forward? Are we ushering those people out the door because they're choosing, you know, against getting vaccinated for whichever reasons um, that they have? Um, we've seen our, you know, employers thinking about how to incentivize people to get a vaccine. So we're not mandating, but we want to encourage. So what does that look like? And we want to be mindful of, you know, what those incentives are to make sure that we're not, you know, getting into any legal pitfalls. So we are recommending that if we're putting incentives in, you know, we're kind of doing that across the board, whether it's an additional day off or it's some sort of sort of mo small monetary incentive that we're sort of giving it to everybody so that we're not discriminating. 
Um, and this piece about really avoiding tracking who hasn't received a vaccine and who has, we um, recently got a, you know, a question from uh, a client about, you know, I want to open up my, you know, my lunchroom again, and I'm concerned I want to, you know, I only want to allow vaccinated folks to utilize it, which, of course, we run the risk of, you know, kind of discriminating against folks that, you know, are choosing not to get vaccinated or highlighting the people that aren't getting vaccinated um, or we're, you know, possibly getting into a space where we're thinking we have some sort of group immunity, uh, which we want to avoid because we want to make sure we're continuing with our, you know, our safety protocols. We want to still wear masks. We want to still make sure that we're wearing our PPE. We want to make sure we're you know, containing our, continuing our social distancing. So it really shouldn't matter who has been vaccinated and who hasn't, because we really do need to continue those safety measures for, you know, the workplace. That, I think that's a great point about the differential treatment. I think that's going to be a huge issue over the next six months as well. Right now, yeah. it's still kind of moot, right? Because the all the guidance is to continue to wear the PPE at work and everything and keep in place all the social distancing and structured schedules and everything else. But as that opens up and relaxes, and especially I was recently talking about this with colleges and universities, you know, as, they, as those students come back in the fall, is differential treatment allowed? And um, I think that's going to be a real issue. You see on the CDC's guidance, um, they do right now allow for some differential treatment, right? If you've been fully vaccinated and you've been exposed, then you don't have to quarantine. Whereas if you haven't been vaccinated and you've been exposed, then you're still supposed to quarantine, right? And then, so there is some uh, going to be some tension there within the workplace with mm -hmm. certain people who have to quarantine and certain people that don't. And, and um, it's just going to be a very interesting issue going forward. Now, let's just go back because uh, we talked a lot about um, exemptions and being mindful of, of, of mandates and um, and incentivizing and stuff like that. But, you know, a, a common question is, you know, how do you qualify a sincerely held religious practice or belief? Somebody comes to you and says, hey, you know, I'm not going to take the vaccine because my religion says I can't. You know, can an employer, do they, do they dig on that? Can they qualify that comment? I mean, what do we do about that? Yeah, that that's a tough yeah. one, right? Especially... I, I think there's, um, you know, some uh, dispute as to which religions actually prohibit um, uh, vaccinations. But nevertheless, the EEOC takes a very broad definition of sincerely held religious belief. And you, you have to have some uh, ob objective reasons to, to push back on that. And it's a very difficult uh, thing to push back on that. We, I've, I've done that in a case and, and we lost because ultimately the definition is very broad. And so um, you, if you do mandate the vaccines, you are gonna get some requests for religious accommodations, just as the, the public schools do now, right? Right here in Connecticut, for those of you in Connecticut, it's been in the news a lot where the legislature is considering eliminating the religious uh, uh, exemption to, to mandatory vaccinations for school children, right? Um, and, because schools get those. Um, but uh, that's not going to apply to employees. For employees, you're dealing with Title VII. It gives them the right to request accommodations. And then you're going to have to go through, rather than, than uh, push back on, on that, it, it's better to focus the energy on, well, can we accommodate them? You know, can they work remotely? Are there other things in the workplace that we can do uh, to accommodate their requests, additional PPE? 
continue to make them wear PPE if the if that uh, if mask mandates, et cetera, are lifted, and focus your energy on, on that analysis. Can we implement mandating the vaccine for now, and then reevaluate it next year under new COVID land when the landscape changes? Uh, if so, are there any legal considerations or ramifications, Peter, in, in putting something, you know, changing the policy? Uh, having one policy today and then changing midstream, could some people say, hey, wait, that, that wasn't fair because, uh, you know, I, I I did it when you mandated it and now you're not mandating it. And so we'll talk about that for a minute if you could. Yeah, I mean, if anything, over the last year, we've learned that things can change at any minute, right? And and um, sometimes there's arbitrary lines that are drawn, right? The FFCRA, for example, why did it only apply to employee employers with under 500 employees? I don't know. That's just the definite. That's the way Congress went. And so, um, you know, I, I think employers if, on all the different topics uh, we're talking about need to be flexible, do the best you can, come up with a policy, and if a year later it's not, it's no longer required or no longer justified in the circumstances, then maybe you change it, right? I think it's it's hard to predict what's going to happen in the future. We need to focus on uh, making the best legally justifiable decisions you can at this time without um, maybe addressing something that might happen a year or two down the road. Yeah, you know, it's, it's so what we do want to do for sure, whether you mandate or not, and again, we might be beating a dead horse. It sounds like most employers just aren't going to mandate, but, but you know, you can make it easier for people to get the vaccine and you can incentivize them. And we talked about that. And speaking of make it e easier, I don't think we talked about the fact that, um, you know, the, the, the White House just announced last week that uh, there could be a tax credit for providing PTO for um, for people going to get the vaccine or having complications from it, right, Peter? That's right. Yeah, um, um, that this is going to be right now under the FFCRA. If uh, employers voluntarily apply that, you can give leave for those purposes and get the tax credit. And it appears what Pe President Biden was uh, proposing the other day was kind of a standalone tax credit, allow your employees to take leave to get vaccinated and deal with any uh, adverse reactions to the vaccine. And you can get a, a tax credit for that um, for that PTO you provide. But the details haven't been uh, announced yet or, or finalized yet, I guess. So stay tuned on that. Mm. You can, can an employer um, request documentation that someone's got the vaccine? Yes. <laughs> That's one of the, the 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 questions today, where there's a, a pretty short answer, right? Yes, the EEOC has said yes. That's not a disability-related inquiry. You can ask them if they've received the vaccine, and you can ask for uh, proof uh, of that vaccine, right? The vaccine cards they give you at CVS or Walgreens or wherever else employers or employees are getting their vaccines, perfect. That's all you need. You don't need their entitled medical record. You just need uh, that card. Then what about documentation of a legitimate reason why they didn't get the vaccine. Can can you ask for that? I we think that we're running the risk of, you know, potentially seeking medical information that we don't need. And somebody's personal belief to not get the vaccine is simply that an employer cannot um, or should not ask for the reason why that person is not seeking the vaccine. If there's a reason or a purpose that we're collecting the vaccine information, you know, we can stand behind that as a business need. And we're only collecting, you know, that information and keeping it, of course, in a confidential area on a need to know basis. Um, I 
I would caution employers for seeking out information as to why somebody isn't. Um, and Peter, I'm sorry, go ahead from the legal side. No, I, I agree. You're absolutely right. You know, when you start making disability related inquiries, that can that can um, walk you into certain problems. So I agree with what you said. How about what do we do with someone who um, an employee who's refusing to come back into the office, back into the workplace, because they know that not everybody is vaccinated? So I'm not coming back until everybody's vaccinated. What do you do about that? Well, that, that that's a good question, right? Because um, you, as the employer, have the ability to determine where your employees work, right? And, and um, if if you them to return to the office and they don't want to, then you're going to walk through the typical analysis. You know, do they have a reason for not coming in, such as a uh, uh, a medical reason, you know, um, a, a disability, an accommodation? Are they working remotely um, because of uh, a disability-related accommodation? That's one thing you would have to consider. If not, then you have to consider the type of things Nicole brought up before, you know, just uh, uh, morale, employee support. Can we continue to do this? With the person outside the office, you know those um, less legal terms and more um, business-focused um, decisions. You know, one one question that comes up that has been coming up is how do employers, you know, can employers sort of treat people differently if you've had the vaccine versus not had the vaccine? Um, for example, you know, allow people to have meetings only if they've been vaccinated. Uh, or, or have employee events uh, only for the vaccinated employees, and but excluding the non-vaccinated employees. Can you do that? I do recommend against it. You know, I want to ensure that, you know, from an HR side, we're remembering, you know, that these are our employees and we want to think about, you know, having empathy and how this impacts our morale and, you know, we don't want to be excluding people from company events or, you know, gatherings or meetings because they haven't sought the vaccine for whatever reason it is that they have. Um, we could inadvertently be discriminating against somebody for, you know, a sincerely held belief or a disability if they've chosen not to get the vaccine for that reason. And yes, our safety guidelines may change over time, but right now, we are treating everyone the same way. So I go back to the fact that what is the purpose of excluding those folks if everyone is still taking precautions, wearing masks, et cetera? Yeah, you mentioned safety. Peter, from a legal standpoint, does, does OSHA guide, do OSHA guidelines come into play here at all? Um, OSHA has posted some guidelines on, on all these uh, return to work issues. And as Nicole mentioned before, you know, that right now we're not at the point where they're suggesting people come back and not wear masks, et cetera. And so, um, you know, stay tuned, keep updated, keep uh, watching for updated regulations. We're hoping, well, I'm sure we'll get more from OSHA. We'll sure we'll get more from the CDC. Um, and I'm sure we're going to get more from the EEOC as well on, on, on vaccinated related issues, vaccination related issues, excuse me. Well, you know, listen, let's get off of the, the mandate versus incentivize conversation and let's talk about, um, I guess we'll call it building vaccine confidence. Here it is on the slide. And, and there are many who are, who are looking to better educate their employees on the vaccine to build that confidence. Nicole, where would you direct employers to get information 
or what have you done personally to get employees more comfortable about getting the vaccine and what you can do to encourage it? Yes, yeah, so first and foremost, we're working with employers to ensure that the leaders, you know, of the organization are, you know, champions of getting the vaccine. There's a lot of different ways to, you know, build confidence around this. Uh, personal stories. We have leaders that have been, you know, putting together videos that are personal as to why they're doing this, how it's impacting their family, their community, you know. I know that most employers want to have, you know, universal vaccination at their location because of course it helps mitigate the risk of absenteeism, you know, related to COVID. So we want, you know, those same leaders to be, you know, educating employees as to why this is so important to the business and why it's so important to them. And I think that that goes a long way. Hot off the press has changed their guidance. I always thought, like, if you really want to incentivize people, tell them, once you get vaccinated, we can loosen up a little bit on the mask wearing, right? So the CDC yeah. has come out and said, I think just as of today, fully vaccinated people can, if they're in a small group, not in large groups, but small groups outside, um, uh, go maskless. So I think that's a huge step in the right direction, Is and it's an incentive, in my opinion, for people to go ahead and 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 get the uh, get the vaccine. But here's some other things we could do. You know, you can pay time off, uh, wellness credits, et cetera. Uh, we just found out that Cigna is giving their employees $200 plus another PTO day for um, once they become fully vaccinated. So you can get creative here, right? Um, and I, it sounds like getting creative and having a little fun with it might be a better solution than than mandating it to to put a period on that conversation. Um, yeah, I just wanted, before you get, yep, I was going to say that uh, the one area, another area where we need some additional guidance from the EEOC was with those nominal gift cards, right? The government announced last week that the EEOC is going to have some uh, forthcoming guidance as to how you can run incentive programs without running afoul of the ADA and things of that nature. So hopefully, um, that'll be out soon. It should have been out months ago, but you know they had a lot on their plate. So. Yeah, as usual, this is emerging and it's fluid, so there'll, there'll be more information forthcoming. We might have to have another webinar before too long. Um, all right, let's get to return to work. Okay, so what if an employee, we, we, kind of, uh, we kind of talked a little bit about employees who are hesitant to come back to work. What if an employee doesn't want to come back to work or the office or the workplace uh, and, and there's no medical excuse for it? We sort of touched on it before, but Nicole, why don't you weigh in on this one, on those hesitant uh, employees. So when it comes to hesitation, you know, we do need to consider the fact that this pandemic has impacted all of us, but not all of us in the same way, right? So as employers, we want to be mindful of that and that employees themselves may have very justifiable reasons why they do not want to return to the workplace. Again, we as employers are navigating right now what the workplace is going to look like. But there may be options for some employees to continue to be remote, um, whether it's 
you know, going to help your employee morale or retention, you know, it's certainly going to be something that you want to consider, whether it's that hybrid model or remote. Um, from a legal perspective, you know, as an employer, you can require your employees to come back to the office and you can mandate it, but it is going to have an adverse effect if you have employees that, you know, really do have a genuine reason why they can't, and it could potentially impact your retention. The, the last year has really been the great experiment on remote work, and most companies would say they've been able to successfully continue operations, as I mentioned. But at the same time, uh, there have been discussions around this productivity is making people weary, and, and there's burnout, and the lines have been blurred between work and home, and we're at a point where employees are just exhausted. So as employers start to think about their return to work plans, Nicole, what would you tell them to consider around this issue of burnout and, and overload? So I think there's two sides of the coin here. I think that there you know, has been an overwhelming response from employees that they find themselves as productive or even more productive at home um, in this, you know, remote environment because they're, you know, they're not commuting to and from work. And that's a huge, you know, time for most people that are working. Um, you know, other side of the coin is yes, that there's opportunity to be working all the time and there's no separation between work and what's that work-life balance. I think employers can do a lot to communicate expectations if they continue with the, you know, remote environment or the hybrid model, meaning that their expectation of the employees are to work, you know, that defined period of time or their schedule and that they shouldn't, you know, be available all hours. Um, if we're considering, you know, returning to the workplace, I think it's important that we are, you know, thinking about are our employees ready? You know, who should be coming back first? What are the milestones? Um, there's a lot here. You know, we could spend an entire webinar it's it, on its own, you know, on this return to the office piece. Um, but I can't, you know, encourage enough transparent communication from leadership and, you know, seeking employee feedback and buy-in is gonna be very important. Got it. Hey, Peter, you know, we're hearing stories about people, employees who have literally just relocated. They've moved, they've moved to another state. They're like, ah, oh, we're working remotely forever now, apparently. So, so what do employers do about that? I mean, can, can, they, can they tell people, nope, we've got to move back? What do you do? That's an interesting and real issue uh, on several fronts, right? And, um, you know, if you have an employee who you know is now living in Pennsylvania and you're a Connecticut corporation and, and, and their intent is to remain there, then you need to think about unemployment, workers' compensation, registering your business. And there's real-world impacts uh, to that employee's decision on your company. And, and you need to decide, you know, whether you're going to do those things and, and take care of that or maybe separate from employment or, or something in between. And so... Uh, there are some real-world consequences to that, and I know some companies have are, are just discovering, right, that people have moved without their knowledge, and and what do you do once you discover that? And so, um, th those are some very interesting issues. And and going back to to what Nicole was talking about, you know, in terms of these returning to work offices, and um, some things were okay on a temporary measure, but now if they're going to be permanent, 
or you know longer term you need to make sure all your policies are updated your job descriptions are updated to reflect what that individual is doing your your wage and hour analysis right you don't want to be caught uh, now someone's um a non-exempt employee and they're entitled to all this over right you want to make sure those things reflect any new realities in the workplace and so it's always a good idea to, to update job descriptions and wage and hour analysis and all those things and i, I think now in the next, you know, six months is going to be a, those are going to be key considerations for employers as well. So I guess I need to think about moving back to the United States from Aruba, which is really disappointing. <laughs> uh, can, you know, yeah. can you require that only vaccinated employees return to the workplace in a, in a phased approach? What if an employee refuses to report back to the workplace because they object to taking public transportation or they live in or have to travel through a, a COVID hotspot and they've got concerns about that? Well, how do you address that? You know, at the end of the day, if it's important for that employee to come in and they can't come in, then they're free to look for another job elsewhere. You don't have to accommodate that unless it's, of course, some sort of disability, they have anxiety, they present you with a no, you know, and go through that whole analysis of a, of a disability-related accommodation. But at the end of the day, I think as Nicole mentioned before, you have a right to dictate where your employees work. Yeah. So the bottom line is you can you can have a policy that says, look, you know, we're, we're back to the workplace, we're, we're back in person, uh, either, you know, 100% or some hybrid method, and we expect you to, to, to follow our, our, um, our policy, right? Right, or flip it around. You decide, as, uh, as some, some employers I know have decided, look, this remote thing works for us. We're no longer going to have an office. We're not going to require you to report. What, what do you do with the employee who says, I can't work from home. It's too, I have young kids. It's, it causes me anxiety. You know, what do you do in that situation, right? That's the reverse. Um, you yeah. know, I think at the end of the day, the employer can still say how, how and where the employee works, but um, lots of interesting issues. Peter, I, we, we do have to wrap up soon, but I, I, I did get this question. What about if someone's job requires business travel and we're back to some sense of normalcy and that, em, that employee who used to travel a lot on business because the job required it, is they're saying, no, 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 I'm not traveling. Same thing, like that, that, sorry, but that's a condition of your employment and you're going to have to figure it out? Well, yeah, I mean, let's take out your little checklist and go through the analysis, right? What, what is his, his or her job? What does the job description say? How important is business travel? Um, if it is important, you know, do they have some sort of reason for, for that to be excused? If it's an essential function, you don't have to eliminate it. But, you know, if they have a disability or some other reason, then go through that analysis, make the individualized uh, the determination that, that you would normally do and, and, you know, make the best decision you can. But, you know, briefly, if it's part of the job and they need to travel to fix the machine or whatever it is, the reason that requires the travel, then they have to travel. Yeah. So I, it, then you get the scenario where travel or not, sometimes you, you might run into folks who say, look, I, I don't want to, you know, I'm just not coming back. And we sort of touched upon this, but Nicole, you know, what about the employee who might say, look, I, I, I don't have a medical excuse. I don't have anything. I'm just concerned uh, not coming back to the workplace. I think what we can do as employers is, you know, educate 
create the policies, let our employees know what we're doing to ensure safety and well-being, um, what are you know the cleaning methods, what are the social distancing protocols we're putting into place, what's potentially the new equipment that we're providing to employees at their workstations, such as printers and copiers, to make sure that you know there's not a lot of congregation in common areas. Um, I've seen employers that are allowing people to bring in refrigerators, you know, in their offices or under their cubicles, you know, so there's ways to educate and, you know, lessen the anxiety for our employees. I think having a conversation, finding out what really is upsetting that employee, trying to, you know, create a method for them to return is the first step. To Peter's point, you know, as an employer, you can Im implement the policies that you need to from a business perspective. So you have to consider, you know, what are, you know, the the needs of the business and this particular role. I went through this analysis a lot last fall, right, with the teachers returning to school. We represent a lot of schools and and that we were that we were in a much different place in July and August of 2020 than we are now, right? And there were some real hesitation and so doing the exact things that Nicole was just talking about was a real thing that schools had to do and and thankfully that's worked very well right it's proven that um, they can return to work and, and transmission hasn't happened to a large extent within the schools it's been a it's worked pretty well so um, but those same considerations that allowed all of those teachers and students to return to work can easily be applied here and, and going through all that those, those same suggestions being creative, um, talking to your employees. I love the, the example about the fridge, right? If someone needs that in their office, um, great. You know, oh, I so have a fridge in my office, that's for sure. It's no longer gonna, uh, <laughs> it isn't gonna work, right? You gotta be creative, come up with new things to, to get your employees back to work. All right, let's wrap this up uh, on uh, social distancing protocols. And I'll just quickly say, first of all, Keep referring to CDC guidelines. I think, you know, as employers, you got to keep your eye on it. What's the CDC recommending? I think most employers are generally following CDC guidelines. So keep your eye on that. You know, you could think about things like staggering work hours and alternative days for people coming into the workplace, different shifts and so forth. Um, evaluate your workplace and, and the layout of the workplace to see if you can make accommodations and keep the work area safer and create some social distancing. Uh, you know, develop protocols to avoid crowd crowding in elevators or common rooms and so forth. Maybe you could even set certain lunch uh, schedules. So again, I think we've used the word creative a few times. Uh, it can be done. Uh, there, there are a lot of great examples out there of employers that have found a way to make it safe and, and get people back into the workplace already. And we're gonna see more of that happening and, and you can still follow those CDC guidelines on, on distancing and mask wearing. So we really appreciate, P you know, Peter and Nicole, thanks so much for joining me and thank you uh, everyone who tuned in.